Hi, I'm Eric, also known as Trekkie V47, from the Ranger Command Power Hour and the Starfleet Escape Podcast. You're listening to another great Four Eyed Radio product. For more shows, check out FourEyedRadio.com. It's Morphin Time! Ay, 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 ay! It's the Ranger Command Power Hour! Extra Episode 82, Ranger Command at C2E2 2021. Recorded on C2E2 Weekend, December 10th through 12th, 2021. Welcome to the Ranger Command Power Hour on the Four-Eyed Radio Network. It's time to range up with your host, I'm Eric, also known as b 47 This episode is brought to you by our patrons on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash rangercommandph to learn more about supporting Ranger Command Power Hour. Thanks to our $5 and above patrons, Charles D., Chris P., Steve F., AJW, Eric D., Jacob P., Steve M., Tyler B., Tyler W., Charlie M., Craig M., Liz M., Mason M., Kevin R., Steve R., Hassan A., Bo H., Leland D., Josh P., Derek G., and Teresa B. for supporting us this month. Remember, you can go to our link tree at linktr.ee slash rangercommandph for all of the links for Ranger Command, including our Amazon affiliate link at amazon.com slash shop slash rangercommandph. Hello and Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to all of our listeners. We are releasing this episode of Ranger Command on December 25th, which is Christmas around the world. And if you celebrate, I just want to wish every one of our listeners a very Merry Christmas. Thank you for tuning in to Ranger Command. Zach and AP are busy with their holidays, and I am doing a solo recording. A lot going on this year. A lot happened. But for the first time in a year and a half, conventions were back, and that convention is C2E2. We did a C2E2 in 2020, right before the start of the pandemic lockdown, and that was personally my last show for conventions, and we had a whole episode there Last year, Zach and I actually got to record a live episode at the show, and that was a wonderful experience. But then everything shut down, and C2E2 delayed their 2021 show until the last month of the year in December. So before I get into what was going on at C2E2, I first want to talk about some news that happened. First off, on December 10th, which was the first day of C2E2, there was a Fan First Friday for all new Lightning Collection reveals. And for the Lightning Collection, they debuted the In Space Red Ecliptor figure, and they also talked about the Zord Ascension project for the Mighty Morphin Dino Megazord, and got more details on that release. There was also an interview with Boom Studios including Ryan Parrott, Nicole Andelfinger, and Daphna Pleben, all involved in the Power Ranger comics. So a little bit more insight into Power Rangers issue 14, which is coming next week, as well as Power Rangers Universe issue 1, also debuting next week. Check that out on our website. We have a link to the full press release for the figures, new pictures of the Zap Megazord and Red Ecliptor, as well as a link to the live stream for those interviews. Next up, since this is kind of a big comics month, there is a lot of comic news right now. First off, Godzilla and Mighty Morphin Power Rangers crossover in a new IDW comic miniseries. 
So this is a five-issue miniseries event from IDW and Boom Studios under license by Toho International and Hasbro. This is Godzilla versus the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, bringing together the two Titanic franchises together for the first time. So this will launch in March of 2022, and it will have writer Cullen Bunn of Deadpool, Green Lantern, and Godzilla Cataclysm, as well as artist Freddie Williams II for Batman slash Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and He-Man slash Thundercats. The little synopsis here is, when Rita Repulsa uses an ancient artifact to transport herself to a universe without the Power Rangers, she finds herself in a world with aliens, kaiju, and Godzilla. Hoping to annihilate this new foe, Rita hurls her own terrible creatures into battle, but she never expects that the rangers have followed her to this alternate reality, pitting the dinosaurs themselves head-to-head with the King of the Monsters. This is really, really incredible. So we have the whole press release, including quotes from everyone involved at IDW Publishing. We have that on rangercommand.com, and we'll have a link to that in our show notes. But I'm actually really excited for this. It's another one of those crossovers that has me really excited for the possibilities of what could happen between these two legendary franchises. So I'm really excited. I don't know how they're going to handle five issues of it, but I'm sure that they have a great story plan for this. So really excited for what happens there. Next up, uh, Mighty Morphin 14 is already out in stores now. If you listen to our last episode, we mentioned that it would be available that week. You can check out our comic review of Mighty Morphin 14 at rangercommand.com. And also releasing next week on December 29th, Power Rangers 14, the Omega Rangers retreat to safe haven in Power Rangers 14. Lots of really cool things happening in this issue. You can check out my full review on the site. But the new Blue Omega Ranger, along with the rest of the Omega Rangers, retreat to Safe Haven to plan their next steps. With information gathered from Zordon and the Blue Emissary, our motley crew of heroes and villains set their sights on defeating the minions of their former ally and conducting a rescue mission. But in a galaxy full of enemies... Who or what awaits their rescue? So really looking forward to everyone to read this issue because it's very well done. And I think a lot of people are going to enjoy this part of the Eltarian War. We also have upcoming the March solicits just released today as I record this. And these are the Power Rangers solicitations for March of 2022. There are a lot of spoilers on the covers, so we'll link to that. But the biggest news to come out of this is that for Mighty Morphin 17, which goes on sale March 9th, Ryan Parrott is no longer going to be writing Mighty Morphin. Instead, the new writer for Mighty Morphin is Matt Groom. And Matt is part of the Ranger Danger podcast. And he's run with Kyle Higgins. He's run his own projects, including Self Made and Inferno Girl Red. And he's worked on Ultraman with Kyle Higgins. But now Matt is going to be writing for Mighty Morphin. And along with that comes a familiar artist, Moises Hidago, who also did the artwork for Mighty Morphin Power Rangers 51 through 55. So it's going to be great to see that combination of Matt, who knows a lot about Mighty Morphin and a lot about Power Rangers and see what he brings 
along with the very talented artwork of uh, Moises. And then Ryan Parrott is still going to be with Power Rangers. He's going to be writing Power Rangers 17 on sale March 16th. And Marco Renna is going to join him on that series. So Marco Renna has done all of the artwork for the Mighty Morphin side of the Eltarian War and Mighty Morphin up to this point. But now he's changing over to Power Rangers. So good to see that Marco Renna is still with the comics on that side. I think it's going to be a wonderful issue. And Ryan can finally get a break from writing two concurrent Power Ranger books. And then also in March is Power Rangers Universe number four of six, and that will go on sale March 23rd. You can check out all of the synopses and covers for those issues over at Ranger Command. Now I want to talk a little bit about C2E2 2021. This convention was on December 10th through the 12th. I actually took some time off of work. Uh, Me and Teresa were at the show. We got a hotel that was connected right to the convention center, which was very convenient. And we got there on Thursday. So we got there a day early uh, just to enjoy ourselves. And it was really my first convention back since the pandemic shut down everything. I think it was just great to be back in that environment. I do want to preface that C2E2 took every precaution to make sure that people were vaccinated. You had to prove your vaccination with either an updated vaccination card through an app or the physical card that you have or through a negative COVID test that was recent. So everyone who was at the show and was verified had a wristband on them. So I think it was very safe in terms of prevention of the spread of COVID-19. They had a limited capacity for attendance, and they also had wider aisles. There was less booths at the show. All in all, I think it was a very successful show. It definitely was a bit more laid back, obviously, because there weren't as many people as there were the last time. There weren't some of the major vendors like Marvel or DC or Boom. Any of those major vendors were not at the show. I know a lot of those have participated in other shows like Emerald City Comic Con and New York Comic Con and stuff like that. So I think, you know, end of the year, not a lot of the big vendors were there, but it was still, I think, overall a really successful show. In terms of Power Rangers, the Power Rangers that were on the guest list included Walter Jones, Karen Ashley, Jason Narvi, and Polly Schreier. You know them as Zach, Aisha, Skull, and Bulk. And there was a cast Q&A with them, but unfortunately, my recording of that panel was not really clean, and I couldn't get it clean enough to have the audio be uh, super crisp. So I apologize for that. But obviously, Jason and Polly took over the show with their antics. They took over that panel. They were hilarious. But in terms of fan questions and the answers that were provided, it's really nothing that you haven't heard and stories you have heard before from past conventions. So not really missing out a lot there. But we do have at the end of my segment, there is a writing in someone else's universe panel. Uh, that we had pretty clean audio for that one. And that included Kyle Higgins, who obviously wrote Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. 
and he gave some great insights to things like Shattered Grid and writing for a licensed property like Power Rangers. We'll get into that in a bit. But other Power Ranger alums that were there, Jason Font, who played Wes, the Red Time Force Ranger, he was signing at a booth, but not really a big surprise because he's from Chicago. He has family in Chicago. So I think this was an easy stop for him. He was in a vendor booth and also Dwayne Cameron, who played Tizon in Power Rangers Operation Overdrive. He was also at a vendor booth, but I guess he's been spending more time in Chicago. Uh, he's a film producer and director, so he's been to Chicago, I guess, a lot in recent months, and he was available and at the show. But I really want to focus on and give thanks to both Ryan Parrott and Kyle Higgins. It was great to see Kyle Higgins again, especially, you know, a year and a half since the last C2E2, and it was really good to catch up with him and talk with him. Kyle is obviously promoting his new series, Radiant Black, that it's almost been a year for Radiant Black, which is pretty crazy. But that book is fantastic, and we were able to catch up with Kyle. And then I finally got to meet Ryan Parrott. Unfortunately, I didn't get to meet him at the last uh, Power Morphicon, but because I got to talk to him so much with our interviews on the podcast, I finally was able to meet him at the show. He immediately recognized me, even with a mask on. And we had some great discussions and some great talks there. Talking with these guys, they are really dedicated to their craft. And both of them are super genuine and super friendly. And it's really great to see them in person and really great to see anyone in person. But one of the reasons that I also talked with them is because I recorded a video teaser for the new interview that FN cool has done. So that's EFNcool.com and they have a super massive interview. So super massive is the huge crossover event that is coming in February, 2022 with radiant black from Kyle Higgins, Matt groom with inferno girl red and Ryan parrot with rogue son. So super massive is a crossover for all three of those comics, and it will help launch Rogue Sun and Inferno Girl Red in the Image universe. So very exciting for all three of those creators that was really born out of Power Rangers and their love for Power Rangers. The interview is great, so we'll have the links to effincool.com for the exclusive interview that they have with preview pages for the first time. So really exciting stuff there. Hey, I'm Kyle Higgins. I'm Ryan Perrick. We are two-thirds of the Supermassive writing team. Uh, be on the lookout for our first exclusive interview on all things Supermassive coming soon to FN Cool. I'm excited. Other than that, it was, like I said, a pretty laid-back show. Teresa and I went to a, only a handful of panels. We were able to get everything buying-wise pretty much done on Friday, which was the slowest day of the convention. Obviously, Saturday is the big day where there's way more attendance, and then Sunday was the kids' day. C2E2 is the convention that I've been going to every single show that they've had since 2010. And it's been one of my go-to shows. It is my local show. And it's great that Power Rangers is getting more love for guests. And 
It's a great show. It's very organized. It's always been organized since day one. I think if you've listened to any of other past coverage of C2E2, C2E2 is one of the most well-organized and really great-run conventions uh, here in Chicago and in the Midwest. So it is my go-to show. I'm always going to C2E2. I'm really glad that they were able to have one this year. And next year, it will take place in August. So not their typical March-April show like it used to be in the past. I think they're still adjusting. And who knows, this may become a summer convention going forward, but we'll see. So the dates of that are for next August. You can find more details at C2E2.com. But after this segment, there will be the Writing in Someone Else's Universe panel. That includes Amy Chu, who wrote for Red Sonia, Poison Ivy, and Sea Sirens. Charles Sole, who did uh, Star Wars and Daredevil and many other different novels. And Delilah S. Dawson, who did Star Wars Phasma, Star Wars Galaxy Edge, Black Spire, Minecraft Mob Squad. And then, obviously, Kyle Higgins, who's done Nightwing, Batman Eternal, Gates of Gotham, Batman Beyond 2.0, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Radiant Black, and Ultraman. And it's a fantastic panel. I'm glad that one actually recorded nicely for everyone to hear that. Some great insights into writing for licensed properties, which Power Ranger comics are a licensed property. And there's certain rules that you have to follow versus creator-owned titles. So fantastic insight. I hope a lot of people get some insight into the comics making process for that. And we'll have that at the end of this segment. And I just want to take some time right now to say that I really appreciate everyone's support for Ranger Command, obviously over all of the years, and especially these past couple years, everything with the pandemic. Uh, we've been able to consistently put out quality podcasts, and that's thanks to the support that we get from our listeners. It really means the world to me, and we're able to continually make some great podcasts. And I really appreciate all the support. We've closed out another year of, of Ranger Command with this episode. Thank you tremendously to our listeners. Thank you for your continued support, whether you are a frequent listener, you're a patron, or you know, you're know you using affiliate links or, or what, or just going to our site for news on comics and press releases and all of that from Hasbro and Boom Studios and Again, I speak for Zach and AP as well when we say, you know, we're always continually surprised by the support that we get. And please note that, you know, we appreciate all of the comments. We appreciate any ratings or listener reviews. I know we could always use a bunch more of those like on Apple Podcasts. So please, 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 if you're enjoying the show, you know, just take two to five minutes to uh, rate the show on Apple Podcasts, uh, give a review about why you like Ranger Command Power Hour, and you know we'd really appreciate that. But otherwise, I really hope that everyone has a good Christmas, if you're celebrating Christmas. Otherwise, have a very happy holiday season and a happy new year as well. Please stay safe. Be responsible if you're drinking or partying. And there's going to be a lot going on in 2022. We've got our eighth anniversary special coming in January. I don't know what we're going to do yet for that, but we need to plan that out. There are going to be some pretty big changes coming in 2022 for Ranger Command, but 
I just want to say that whatever happens with the show or life or whatever, that we're really appreciative of everyone taking the time to listen to us. So I'm going to stop rambling here. Merry Christmas and happy holidays and a happy new year. So thank you for listening. Uh, Stay tuned for this writing in someone else's universe panel featuring Kyle Higgins. And we'll catch you next time. Hi there, everyone. Good morning. Morning. My name is Julie, and I will be the moderator for this panel, writing someone else's universe. So please give a warm welcome to Delilah, Kyle, and Amy. Welcome, everyone. Uh, it would be great if you could just share a, a bit about your, the wide breadth of writing that you all have contributed to multiple universes. Uh, my name is Amy Chu. I'm a, I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think it's, I guess it's, I've been asked to be on this panel maybe because I've also written for just about every publisher at this point Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, Disney, Pixar. Uh, I've done two Netflix shows. Uh, so what I'm saying is these are all pretty much licensed properties, meaning I do write in other people's voices and I write in other people's universes. I do also have some creator owned as well, but you know, I've sort of written men, women, aliens, you know, just about everything. Anything that's not my own voice, I don't do a lot of biographical, so hopefully that's helpful. Okay, so um, I'm Claudette Dawson. I am mainly known for writing Star Wars. I wrote Phasma, Black Spire, the Skywalker Saga. Uh, the Perfect Weapon, and then several stories for Star Wars Adventures, but I've also done um, comics like Firefly, The Sting, um, Adventure Time, The X-Files, Case Files, Rick and Morty, Labyrinth, uh, and now I'm also writing a Minecraft series for uh, Moe. Uh, I guess I get to jump in, even though I came in late. Uh, my name is Charles Sobel. I'm a writer uh, for comics, novels. I've done a bunch of different things over the years. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about something on this panel. Uh, my Star Wars work, uh, my original series like Curse Wars and Discover Country, my novels, Oracle Beer, anyone, uh, and then uh, Light of the Jedi was a hit pretty hard uh, when it launched last January. So, thanks. I'm Kyle Higgins, uh, I'm a writer on uh, Bad Days. Uh, on other days, uh, no, I, 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 yeah, so I write comics and uh, I, did a, I did a video game once, uh, do some audio dramas, uh, directing. Uh, and screenplays, stuff like that. So a lot of Marvel, a lot of DC, I did Power Rangers for, for a few years, um, Ultraman, which is also, that, that one in particular is interesting because it's a Japanese um, company that owns Ultraman Subaraya. And so interfacing not only with Marvel, but then also with licensing in the US for Subaraya, but then also sometimes Subaraya. So it's specific, it's like writing someone else's, someone else's universe. You know? <laughs> Fantastic. So uh, you touched a bit on the pandemic. How, did that impact your writing process any in any way, or did it actually sort of give you something to some additional sparks to work with as you were, you know, working on your projects? Yeah, I mean, it was it was either bury myself in work or go crazier. I mean, so I just that's all I did was build things and. I actually started editing for other for other creators and helping put other books together as well. And so that was something that during the pandemic was really great. It's it's uh, I feel like as a writer, this isn't quite about writing other people's characters, but as a writer, you know, you get to a certain point where you feel like you know you, you know what you do well and you know how to do it, and um, and that's fine. 
but it's also at that point that you know if you can dig a little deeper, you can actually question and figure out some you know new paths. It can open, it can, it can open new avenues for you. And for me, co-writing and then editing has actually done has been that because it's a way of you know I love writing the story, and so doing that. You know, because you couldn't see people, so I'm just on the phone all the time with other creators, other writers, just breaking things, helping them with things, putting things together. And what it does is it actually forces you to kind of analyze, wait, why do I bump on that, for example? Or, you know, is it something that, is it just because it's not how I would do it? Or is there something foundational that I'm like, wait, well, that's something that, that's like a tenant of how, what I believe as a, as a creator, you know? And so that, so the pandemic was really beneficial for that, but probably not for my food and alcohol consumption. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll sort of be a little more pragmatic. I think it affected my writing because normally I'm home by myself writing. Um, so in that sense, it didn't change. Like I, it's not like I, I go to office and I come back and I can no longer do that. The big change was suddenly my husband and kids are home with me, and so that that has a little bit of an impact there. And I can't just automatically get up and go to the local cafe or anything during the lockdown. Lockdown. I live in New Jersey. Um, so, so there's there's some challenges there, but on the other hand, um, you know, it actually opened up uh, a lot of gigs for me. It, I would not normally be able to do a, a Netflix writers room because typically they're done in Hollywood and need to be in LA. Um, so I actually had a, a nice opportunity where I, I was zooming, you know, I was zooming in, and because uh, everyone's just like, well, that's 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 all we, that's what we have to do, and that's something I can do. So. So that worked out well just in terms of logistics. In terms of uh, actual writing, I'm not really sure. I think it was um, um, uh, like there, there's so much going on in the world and everything that, uh, you know, what we write or what I write, you know, is escapist anyway. So, you know, I'm just going there and just creating new stuff. I think the difference is that I felt the need to write a lot lighter. You know, to bring some happiness and positivity. And it's just a reaction, right? I don't need to go dark. I was like, I'm not doing work. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go funny. I'm gonna do Rick and Morty, right? you know, uh, which can be, you know, mo mostly funny, sometimes dark, but um, you know, stuff like that, basically. So for novels, we're usually writing one or two years ahead of when the book actually comes out. Um, so I was in a weird position at the end of 2019. I really focused heavily on comics and graphic novels, and in doing that, I hadn't planned ahead for my next round of novels because I'd have to either pitch them or write them and have them sell them. So as 2020 was looming, I had nothing on my horizon, and I was having um, a big panic attack about <laughs> my my career. So if you don't have things for the next two years, that means you don't get paid for the next two years. Um, so I was in the most unique position that when the when the pandemic hit. I was like, oh, I can do literally anything I want to. And it was the first time since I started writing in 2012 was when my first book came out, but it was like, I could do literally anything. Um, and what I did was I put all of my kind of energy and panic into writing and I sold a bunch of books. Now my like dance part is full again, but uh, it was very scary to have this moment that was like, well, we're going into a pandemic and you have no income for two years. <laughs> um, but I also, uh, sold right at the beginning of the pandemic a book about a pandemic that happened kind of sold it before the pandemic hit. So every edit that I had to do, I had to change things because we'd seen how people reacted. Where like in the very first iteration, when we were doing the pandemic, it was all like very hopeful of people do the right thing. By the third, it was like, well, people have messed up again. <laughs> um, I, I think you know I, I echo all the things that people have said here about you know, 
process changes and, and you know employments and all that stuff. All those things hit me too. But the thing that I think was the the most notable and, and challenging for me about the pandemic time is that when you're writing a story, when you're writing particularly novels, but also comics, not things that you really have to leave this world and go to the other world, wherever you, whatever you're writing about, whether it's a galaxy far, far away, or you know when you're writing novels, the only way at least that I can do it, and feel like it may differ, but the you have to completely form that other existence, that other universe in your mind, populate with characters, and then you need to let those characters do what they're gonna do. So it becomes this like weird mental sort of mind house exercise to, to do it. And um, you need to have a lot of focus to be able to do that, to be able to create that other world um, and then inhabit it. And the, the thing about that is you have to go to another world, you have to leave this world behind. And I found that during the pandemic, particularly with all the other, like there's a lot of anxiety inducing stuff. You know, we all know, right? Here we are wearing masks, most of us. And um, the what that does is it's just, there's always these little pings happening in your head because you're not sure what's gonna happen next. And so it's in the real world, this is, right? Like what's gonna happen with another variant? What's gonna happen with this? What's gonna happen? What's gonna happen with the political situation? What's gonna happen with employment? All of these things were sort of always weighing on my head. And so it became very difficult to step away from all of that and to get into the other world I needed to inhabit. So I came up with a lot of different strategies to do it. Uh, you know, I think, I guess all of us did because we're still writing, uh, but it was, that I think is the thing that I remember the most about how, how I had this, this wonderful superpower, I guess, that, that I could, I could go to these other places uh, and, and do these things and then it kind of was, was stripped away from me. Uh, it was surprising because I never thought that would happen, so, um, it's bad. I feel pretty good now. Um, so let's talk about writing for someone else's world because it is a bit of a misnomer because it's not one individual person's world. There might be, have, you know, one individual that initially created it, but there's so many hands involved and, you know, so many folks that you need to sort of work with when you are writing that because of the influences and, and all of that. How, how does that process work with the, the push and the pull and those expectations when you're writing something for someone else's world? Well, I guess, there is an expectation component, sure, but I also feel like there's a little bit of a responsibility component to where um, I heard someone describe it once. What what we do at like Marvel DC is in some ways they're being stewards of characters, mm -hmm. and so um, a lot of times I I look at other people's worlds and universes and, and migrate, and, and this actually goes for like for directing as well. It's like when I read something, I'm looking at like. Okay, well, what about what? What in here can I kind of latch onto? What interests me? Because you do have to fully invest yourself as if it's yours, but you also have to know that it's not yours. And so, when you know, when you know that it's not yours, that means that like there are certain story decisions and certain uh, directions that might be really, really interesting to you as a creator, as a writer, but they may not be. It may not be uh, the responsible decisions for that world or brand or universe or etc. And so I find myself oftentimes like I just did a new Darkhawk series for Marvel, and it's like this is a character that's very has a very um, devoted fan base from the nineties. Um, I I hadn't really read much Darkhawk. I was aware of him, but the concept actually my, my friend Ryan Parrott, who's here, he does all the Power Rangers books. Well, I, Ryan was walking me through the concept one time with a body swap mechanic, and I was like, "That, that, ooh, like that's really interesting." 
So like how do you build a character around that? And so we introduced this character as multiple sclerosis. And so, you know, how do you, the, a synaptic connection with a neurodegenerative condition, what does that do, what does that look like? And, but at, at the end of the day, like there, a lot of what I heard going into it, even the books starting to come out, it's like, well, where's the original, you know? And so, <clears throat> I got to get killed. Uh, <laughs> I should've mentioned that. Um, and it was, well, it's not that, but, uh, come on. Uh, but that's the thing, is there's an expectation there, like you're bringing something back, and I want it back in the way that I remember it, but not really, because you do, they, it, people do want new things, and so it's, that, it's just this balancing act, and, and it's, it's a struggle, but you figure it out, and, or you don't, and you don't get jobs anymore, so. So it really depends on whose world you're writing in and how tightly they hold those reins. Um, you get something like the X-Files, I think was the easiest one I've ever done. They were like, pick any time, pick anything, like any monster of the week you've ever wanted to do, like we don't care, go nuts. <laughs> and it was like, and I turned in, you know, my, my first draft, and they're like, awesome, three changes, we're gone. And that was pretty much it. It was it was so easy, it was delightful. Whereas you get something like, uh, say, Marvel Action Spider-Man that I wrote for IDW, I had like a two-hour call with John Barber to go over the intricacies of the Spider-Man rules and uh, multiple edits and lots of iterations and little tiny tweaks of things. And the same thing with Star Wars. Like with Star Wars, uh, the editors come to us, they tell us what they want the parameters of the book. Um, and we have a lot of freedom within that, but like I can't just write a scene with Kylo Ren or Darth Vader. You know, these people are in different places in the galaxy, and there's a whole crew of people, the story group, who hold all of this knowledge, like the encyclopedia, and they know exactly where Kylo Ren is on July 9th of, you know, this particular year, and if he's not in the same solar system, you can't use it. So we have a lot of people um, that are stakeholders in there to make sure that we get that correct. So it just depends on what world you're in, and you know, your editors will give you a feel of what you can and can't do, um, and tell you, you know, which uh, resources you can work with, and then help you all the way along the way. But it's it's just so different to get some places where they're like anything goes, and other places they're like actually that planet was in a recession that year, so they couldn't make that particular spaceship you chose. And I'm like, I don't care, take a spaceship, I don't care. <laughs> and then they'll make one for you. Oh man, I did three years on uh, on a brand that was locked into continuity from 25 years ago of a children's show that was not designed for continuity. And it was like, there was a two-part episode, a time travel episode, where in one part they say one thing, and in the second part they say something else. Not on purpose, like it was just, there was no script supervisor. And so like, but that's, you get notes like that, and like, well you have to, you can't validate. Yeah, like, or like Firefly, where we know that the Firefly crew was only all together for a very small piece of time when we had every single character in there. And the people in charge of that, they're like, they're like well, you know, watch his emotional state at this moment. You would have been thinking about this in particular, and you're like, all right, got it. You know, it's like one year you know what he, what he was thinking about egg sandwiches that day, and you know that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's so dependent on who you're working for, which franchise, and which editor. Um, there's certain givens, right? Like I did some Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman, you don't mess around with. There are a lot of rules with Wonder Woman. You, you know, can't kill her, can't do all I mean, there's, you know, obvious things, right? So if you know what you're doing, you should know to respect that. You know, we we at the end of the day need to put the, the, the toys back into the chest and let someone else play with it, and hopefully leave things in a better state. Um, but you know, I also wrote for Kiss. Kiss was like whatever you want to do. You know, <laughs> Gene, Gene Simmons. I, I, I literally thought uh, they were paying. 
attention to what I was writing because anything I want to do, they were like, cool. And then I realized, oh, uh, it turns out it, everything was cool because Gene did read it and he liked it because I made him the center of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> you have to know who owns the franchise and what they're looking for. Oh, man. <laughs> um, I, think, I think the lens, you know, I, I've done a lot of work with Marvel, lots of, lots of writing in different you know, zones, but I think the, the thing that might be the most interesting uh, in terms of this discussion is, is to talk about the High Republic, Star Wars The High Republic. And I see that the shirt there, which is awesome. Um, so, so that job was was unique within my experience of writing other licensed universes, right? Because the idea was to take Star Wars, which is what just Delilah just described, which is this very precise historical. Like, there's a, it's not it's not like when you're looking at the continuity of say Spider-Man or something like that. It is more like there is an actual locked-in historical timeline. It's like you're looking at the history of the road from the Greeks to the Romans to like that is what Star Wars is at the moment, right? So everything actually only happens once in the storytelling. You know, I wrote the story of Darth Vader building his castle. That story's been told, it will not be told again until they decide to redo everything. But at the moment, all of that's locked in. And so um, I was part of a group of, of five writers. Uh, it, was, it was me, Justine Ireland, Claudia Gray, Kevin Scott, and Devin Cordial, who are all awesome. Um, and they, they brought us together to, to build a new Star Wars, basically, to build a new, completely new chunk of the timeline. So we, we went out to Skywalker Ranch and we, we started building that. And it was interesting because it was, it was completely blue sky, which means anything you want to do, like throw your best ideas out, let's see what sticks. But it was also, but it's also got to be Star Wars. So the very first thing we did when we went out there was we all, there were you know, whiteboards everywhere. And it was like, let's make a list of everything we think Star Wars is. What are the essential things that Star Wars is? And so that, which I think was really a smart way to begin because it, it gave us kind of, you know, compass headings for like, okay, we whatever we do, it needs to have this sense of found family. That was a big one we all had to agree on. That that the idea that you, your families come to you and it's not always the family you're going into is a big part of it. Uh, lightsabers, unsurprisingly, were a big part of what we thought Star Wars was, and lots of other things. And so, but then it was like, okay, so now that we have these these, it was almost like a like feel, right? Like this needs to feel the right way. But then everything else was was up to us. And uh, obviously, Story Group was very involved, and, and the Star Wars Brain Trusts uh, were very involved. But it was it was really very cool to be sort of trusted in a way to to develop this entirely new era and, and have a sense that our Star Wars voices were the ones that could be used to, to hopefully do this thing that people were going to get into, and uh, and to have it be received the way that it has has been like really pretty cool um, because it, it was hard and we worked really hard on it, and it came out during the pandemic, which is a tough time. Everybody and sort of do this thing that brought presumably some joy to the world was felt really, really good. Thank you. It looks like we have first question out here. Hi there. Hi. I was curious since most, if not all of you, seem to have written both your own work and other people's universes. From your own opinions, which one's better? Or if you're not willing to make a sort of total statement about it, what are the pros and cons from your view of each of those uh, jobs? That you, have? you know, it, they're, they're just totally different kinds of. You know, kinds of jobs, right? Uh, and and one you're making up your own stuff, and the other you're um, working with other people's tools. And and those both have pluses and minuses. The the biggest plus from working in Star Wars, right, Wolverine stories or Wonder Woman, whatever, is that you're you're building on all the goodwill that's been built up over the decades by other brilliant creators who have told stories with those characters. So you you have shortcuts and shorthand you can use. You know, if you show up with a golden lasso, that means something immediately to a reader of Wonder Woman. Um, lightsabers mean something. A red lightsaber is an icon that means like there's a there's a 
you know, like a language that's already established for you. But you also can't kill Wonder Woman, which I don't know if that's something you want to do, but if you see it, you couldn't. Um, so that's the thing about your own stuff, is that you are completely in control of the, of the world building uh, and, and storytelling, which is, which is really gratifying. So, you know, it's, it's just a trade-off. Do you want to try to use the established audience uh, as, as a piggyback, which can be really great sometimes, can be really fun, connecting with existing fans, all that, or do you want to try and build something that's on your own? And I think we're all fortunate that we've got to do a bunch of both, which is the best of, literally the best of both worlds. Yes. Really helps you as um, a, a writer if you can do both. Uh, the IP, the intellectual property stuff, um, helps build your uh, reputation and fan base, and you make really great connections with editors. Um, it is so much fun to get to contribute to something that you really love. Um, you know, as most of us turn down jobs for things that we haven't connected with, and only really you know can write in those worlds that we've absorbed that are part of us. We know what Han Solo would say because we've been listening to Han Solo talks since the you know, early 80s, basically. Um, so that is, is super fun. Uh, but then, you know, our own creative work um, is also, like, it's, the freedom is very comfortable, and it also, like, it pays better. Um, a novel that you write yourself will generally sell for more than an IP work, so it really helps to uh, kind of, like, use them both to level up at the same time, kind of like that. Um, but, man, there is, there is nothing like walking into, like, Star Wars Celebration. I think it's healed all of my uh, old Lady Noah Bray heart, pretty much. It's so interesting in novel writing world. <clears throat> I hadn't considered that because um, comics is the opposite. Usually, the work for hire pays better than the creator owned, unless the creator owned does really well or or you know, pops. And that depends on which publishing you in as well. Um, you know, when I started my career, all I wanted to do was write superheroes. All I wanted to do was write Batman and Spider-Man and Daredevil and all these characters that I grew up loving. <clears throat> And I'm fortunate to have some of those opportunities. Um, I, I, I totally echo that about everything that these just said, especially you know, if you're fortunate enough to, to be a steward on some of these characters or worlds, um, and you you know, it can bring more attention to you as a creator and, and ultimately to your creator own material. You know, I heard Brubaker say once that like writing for, for Marvel DC is like moving pieces on a chessboard in like never-ending game. So you can rearrange it in all different formations and permutations, and it's ultimately, it's also the Philip Stanley, like the illusion of change, right? But with that, like Charles was saying, and those, some of those parameters, you can innovate within that. Like, I do this book right now, Rain in Black, and uh, I have never been more creatively fulfilled than doing this book. So to have something that, and, and people seem to enjoy it as well, and we do a lot of weird and crazy stuff. I just did the entire issue inside of Black Hole. We did it all with fluorescent pantone, which is a black light comic, the whole book. And and just like we, it's just, all of the stuff that I love and, and um, have done for so much of my life as far as creating things in other mediums too, it's that I get to do here, and I didn't know that was possible in comics. Um, and it would not be possible on um, an established uh, world. I don't know if one is better than the other for me. Um, maybe slightly writing um, other people's stuff, honestly, because uh, part of it is uh, my own origin story is that I, I got into writing a little bit by accident.
accident. You know, my background is really more of a management consulting uh, business development background. So uh, previous to writing, my job was to go around fixing other people's messes, you know? And I like doing that. I like to leave things in a better state, you know? You've got a problem, especially with a character or universe. I like fixing that kind of stuff, you know? Green Hornet is a franchise that has kind of stagnated. Green Hornet should be like Batman, right? I mean, he's probably richer than Batman. He's cool, he does a lot of stuff. But that, for whatever reason, had taken off. So I really like taking that and trying to make a story that I thought would be still respecting the original, but updating it and making it, you know, more modern. So that's the kind of stuff I like. And, and they were willing to let me do it, so that's the important thing, right? Um, that they're gonna let me do that. If I have to go sort of blank page, that's actually a little terrifying for me, right? I like to have some constraint with something. You give me a problem, then I'll try to solve that problem. So that's how I create original IP, is I gotta think, you know, about a problem or something particular, and that's when I lay into it. Uh, so I do think it's uh, different for everyone, but I do like, you know, getting a, um, uh, a character that has an existing fan base, but I feel like I, I think I can do something with that and uh, make it better. What is that guy on YouTube? You know, he makes everything better. I feel like, you know, maybe that could be my stick, right? <laughs> taking, taking someone like Katana, right? I'm like, well, what's going on? Or Poison Ivy. That was my way of Poison Ivy. I'm like, wow, Poison Ivy is so underutilized, right? Let's let's do something with her. Um, and so I, I like that a lot. And that's, 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 yeah, I would say working with constraint is what I really enjoy doing. I'm gonna go back to that. You mentioned the that your, you know, Prince Greer and uh, you were a Harvard Business MBA. And I read that you had talked that you should treat comics as a business foremost. Can you speak about that at all? No, that sounds awful. That doesn't sound <laughs> nice. Yeah. I think that's maybe taking a little out of context. That, that, that sounds awful. Um, I completely agree with that. this into something of my own. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's my the thought, business. That's my thought, Lynn, but I don't, I don't telegraph that. It is cool because when I go to a business school reunion, people are like, you're doing what? You know, I don't know if it's, it is pretty cool at that moment, you know, because I can get into San Diego Comic-Con and they can't. <laughs> I come from a law background and it's the same thing, you know, like everybody, like all, a lot of lawyers are like, how did you do this? And I'll just do it. We're a lot sexier now, you know. <laughs> I suppose so. You have scarves sometimes. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, just we're getting a little slightly away from writing another universe thing. But as far as treating comics like a business, it is, it, it is, you know, it's it's an industry where networking is incredibly important. Uh, whatever your end goal is, you know, you, you you cannot do this kind of thing by yourself. And so you you have to make connections. You have to. Um, let other people kind of add it just above or just below your level know you what you're capable of and then they tend to bring you up with them. Um, you know, when I make a creator-owned book, uh, I, I start uh, an LLC, uh, I fund it, I, I budget it out, I, you know, have an employment 
employment contracts, with, and this, my legal background helps a bit with this, but I have employment contracts with all of my contractors, all of the rights are locked down, like, and all of those things mean that, like, for example, you know, if, if I have a comic, uh, Undiscovered Country, right, uh, is, is in development as a film right now, and so when I, when, when Scott Snyder and I were co-writing, we were able to go to the, um, the, the producers of it, you know, all of, it was very easy to sign those deals because everything was like, well, yes, we have all of the, you know, all of the art drawn by the amazing Giuseppe Camacoli is covered under this employment agreement. He, you know, everybody has their pieces, everything's all set up, it's all good to go. And, you know, if you apply that acumen and sort of focus to every level of the creative process, whether it's, you know, you're creating a comic book or, or, you know, how you're approaching how you're gonna get a job at Marvel or whatever, it pays dividends. And I think the, the people on the other side who are the gatekeepers of the jobs can feel it when that level of skill and focus is applied. And uh, I think they are reluctant, a little bit more reluctant to take advantage of you, which is something that is uh, rife, unfortunately. Well, but, but also, like, the Undiscovered Country is a great example of the, the book itself. Like, every book is a small business. Like, yeah. do you know how many, how much work, how much time I spend on books? Yeah. And I'm a comic book writer. Like, you're running a company. Like, I'm, and then you're point person for all of the, a lot, not always, but you're point person for the other creators sometimes. And like, I do all my books at Image. And so I'm sending out wire transfers every month to the creators, yeah. the other creators for royalty shares. We have ongoing spreadsheets we, we run. Like it is, you, you do have to treat comics as a business. Um, because the thing is like, if, and especially if you're only looking at like Marvel DC, and I'm, that's just, this is just one example. You know, there will always be someone that wants that job. And so if you say no, they'll get someone else, is how it always feels as a creator. And that drives prices down. And and so like you can't just bank on that and only put your eggs in that basket. You have to also be looking elsewhere because you just won't last. It's just not, you know, it can be financially viable. Like I'm not trying to say there's no money in comics or something like that, although there really is no money in comics. Piggybacking off of that, um, if you're gonna do this professionally, diversify. Do your own IP, do other people's IP. The difference is you get paid when you're doing other people's IP. Typically, if you're doing your own, it's worth zero until you get a deal of some sort, right? So uh, diversify. Um, I, I, I was asked to teach writing uh, to the Kubrick School art students. And I'm like, no, they, they need to learn business, okay? They need to, most art students do not, uh, you don't go to art school to learn business, right? But you need to learn that. And um, uh, to that point, you know, I, I, I did have them open a spreadsheet. I've never seen so much reluctance and terror before, you know, but you have to learn to do it. I said, if you're gonna do a show like this, right? If you're an art student or you're, you're gonna, I have a couple students here, you know, um, Elena Morton all the way in the back with uh, Nick Nunes. <laughs> I, I hope they did what I told them to do, which is basically, you know, uh, figure out how to make back your table. You know, you have a little spread, figure out what your expenses are, what your potential income is, and all that stuff. It, it's just do it on a piece of paper if you need to, but lose the terror of the, of the spreadsheet because you do need to start treating your work like it is a business. And if you want to get into writing IP, um, you know, coming from the novel side, typically you won't get invited to do that until you have some of your creator own work um, under your belt and a reputation for working fast and being super easy to work with. When they come to you with edits, you don't pitch a bit, you go right on top of that and give it to you tomorrow. Um, so, you know, it usually takes three to five, if not 10 years of working in novels and kind of building a reputation and showing that you can hit your deadlines before you get invited to do it. Um, and you would really want to have an agent in that case. Um, 
There are a lot of predatory contracts out there and having an agent who can read that contract and make sure that you're not giving up any rights that you should be keeping for yourself. And my agent can also take a contract and like bump it up by a few thousand dollars just by going to them and saying, well, we actually, you know, she's very busy, we're considering other projects, we'd like to sweeten the pond here. And she can make that happen. And that's like, I don't even have to do work. My agent just sends an email and the price goes up. So uh, yeah, an agent will take 15% as industry standard and it is completely worth every dime. This was not what this panel was supposed to be. We're, we're, we're teaching you how to have a career economy, sort of. But, but what I think you, you're hearing from like the four of us talking about this is that you know there, there are all these different buckets that you need to put energy into if you're gonna have a career as a creative writer, let's say. And, and I think those are, you need to be really, you need to really, really be good at your craft. And that's first, if that is not there, then none of the other stuff really matters. But you also need to be, I mean, work with charming and, and, and sort of be able to hang out with people and have people kind of like you and enjoy the experience of working with you. If you should be smart at business, you should put time into that. You should be smart at marketing. You should, you should be aware of where you are in the entire business ecosystem and how, who the people are that you need to network with in order. So like, all of those things are, are extremely important. And if you're really, really, really good at one, like you're literally the best writer in the world, the rest sort of goes away. You don't need to worry much about it. But if, you know, whatever you're particularly good at can offset some deficiencies in the other areas, but really it is like, that's why doing this job is so intense, because you have to be good at some of the things. Describing building a character sheet, and I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Wait, what's, that, what's that saying? You have to be nice, good, and fast, you have to be two of those three, and, and they, they can switch. <laughs> It's, it's, but you know, that, that that's the business side. Yeah, some of the things that we're talking about, like in the self-marketing, you have to be real, a real self-starter, you gotta be hyper-disciplined. Anyway, you have a question, sir. <laughs> you said you can't tell characters. So who actually makes that decision, would you say? Like, whereas, you know, Hallsworth, I know the main hero, literally dies in like, a, what is it, I think a fourth issue? Should've done it sooner. <laughs> <laughs> so the fourth issue, so his was a lot quicker. So how does that go about it? Because Clearly, you can't kill characters. Like Wonder Woman, had, if sometimes I remember, I think they tried the Amazon Wonder Woman for a couple of issues. Like she was gone for a bit. So, I, my question it's is like, not a story. It just comes out of the narrative. Like, what's okay, so, what's the story? and What's the best thing for the story? And okay. if you're gonna pitch, you know, I I <laughs> I walked into Saban's offices and did a four-hour pitch meeting for for Shattered Creative. And uh, by the end of it, at the start it said no to everything, by the end it was a yes to everything. And that included kill. one thing they, actually the only thing they never said no to was that I was gonna kill the most popular power feature <laughs> in a page turn in the kickoff of the event. And, but it came out of then everything that happened after that was the point of the story. So if you're pitching a compelling narrative for it, yeah. you can have a conversation. Let, let me clarify too, when I say you can't kill off a character, you as a new writer that's asked to pitch cannot start off with that and say that. You already have an established relationship, you have a good reason for killing off the character. The typically, it's, it's not necessarily you, it's uh, there, there's some discussion within the stakeholders. Yeah, yeah, and they're like, what if we did this? And you're like, well, what if we did this? But when you are a newbie and you're pitching, that's not the way to go, okay? That's what I really meant by that. You know? I meant, you know, and, and I do think that you have to sort of, um, read into certain things. It's not like gratuitous, like let's just kill things off because we feel like it. We, we woke up one day and it's not like editorial says, we hated this character so much, we're just gonna kill it off. You know, I think you have to sort of separate some of that stuff out. Some things are a business decision, some things are a narrative decision, uh, but it's not up to you, especially if you're someone trying to make a living off of 
Yeah, it's like it's, it, it goes in the same category for me as like if you're starting out and you're going to pitch, say if you have an opportunity to pitch Marvel and to pitch Fantastic Four story, like don't go in and go like the Fantastic Four, the first family. What if they get a divorce? You know, like that's you're going at like to break the core of the engine of characters, and that's not you know it's it's the same kind of thing. Like you wouldn't pitch that as your first story because it's like you know it's just but what but. If you get to a certain point in your career where you have a lot of equity built up with those stakeholders, you can't face that crisis. Yeah, absolutely. Like if, if you know you go into, I mean, you know, like you go into a, a big meeting and you're like, "This is what I want to do," and they're like, "Okay, well, tell us more." And and that's because you, you've executed stories well in the past. I think if you're pitching this, you must have a good idea for wanting to pitch it, and then you have a conversation. And sometimes it doesn't work, but um, you know, there are only three rules in capital. There are only three people who can never come back from the dead, right? Bucky, Uncle Ben, and Gwen Stacy. And two of those three are back. Yeah. And Bucky, <laughs> go, go Google uh, any Brubaker article about creating Bucky and, and Breivort's done a bunch of articles too, like just talking about that process. Because Breivort was like, I'm not going to say no, but you really got to convince me. Mm-hmm. You know? And it was a process and it was thorough um, before they did it. And can you imagine the Marvel Cinematic Universe without Bucky Barnes? Mm-hmm. No, it's crazy. Right? It's also about trust. And sometimes they make you kill people. Um, ask Bob Salvatore about killing Chewie. Like, he didn't want to do it. He's been taking flat cord all these years. Um, and I had that happen in one of my Star Wars books once where I said, Can I use this character? And they're like, Yeah, but they have to be dead by the end of it. So, y'all have talked about sort of the, the stakeholder reporting and the narratives. What about sort of the, the readers and the fans when you're writing and, and you're making decisions? Is there ever in the back of your mind the thought of like, the people that buy this book may not be happy that I am killing off this character or making this narrative choice. You're aware of it. Yeah, you're aware of it. The Killing the Green Ranger is like the most popular character in the franchise. I mean, go to any convention, he still, Jason David Frank still draws a huge line. Like, that decision, it was a, it, what made it even weirder was that the book ended up getting delayed. And so we had this WonderCon panel that, that had been promoting for like weeks and weeks that was going to be huge. But the book needed to be out beforehand, and it wasn't. So uh, Arun Singh, who was at Boom at the time, had this brilliant idea because well, we could get 1,500 copies of this printed, like right now. And what if we surprise hand it out to everyone in the room and let them read it live? And so we teed it up like really well. Like, you know, back in the day, uh, I remember seeing like Jeff Johnson get on stage doing like hand conventions for the big events or whatever coming up, and he'd have a copy and he'd bring someone up and let them read it. And so we pulled that gag and they finished reading it. It's cool that you got to read it, but like Power Rangers is about being inclusive. It's not very inclusive for just one person to read it. So we want you all to read it, and everyone went crazy. But then I had to sit there and watch a thousand people read something I wrote, and then while you can see the moment, there was a Because without the hatred, the fake out too, some people started to cry. Um, some people started to yell. Uh, I got a lot of Snape killed Dumbledore, like a lot of that kind of stuff, and it was this weird energy coming back at us, and I, and originally, it's, it's funny, Ryan just ducked, had to duck out for uh, signing, but he was, we were sitting next to each other because he was doing Coco Power Rangers, and originally the page was very gratuitous, the, the sword was like through the chest, like classic, kind of like from stab in the back, and they had asked us, they had made us take the sword out. And at the time, it was a little bit of a, not a fight, but it was like, really? Like, so what, how, you know? And we're sitting there in this moment, and, and this was like the toned down version. I turned to Ryan and said, I'm really glad we took that sword out. <laughs> <laughs>
So yeah, you do think you're aware of that stuff, but then the, uh, this is, hopefully this is a really good example. Like people started actually yelling because um, the moderator said, "Well, how do you guys feel? You just read this, and, and it wasn't the best thing to do in the moment." So people started kind of yelling and murmurs and things like that. And I just said, "I said, do you do you like the book?" And and they said, "Yes." I said, "Okay, have you liked what we've done to this point?" I said, "Then I just have I just have to ask you to trust me. There's a point to the story. Just please trust me." And that kind of then I had to make sure I stopped the landing, you know? So, <laughs> the thing that I would say to this point is that um, when, when, a, when a fan thinks about a plot point, if it's something that's controversial or something that they, they might not want to happen to one of the characters that they like, they always have the worst version of it in their head. Yeah, the yeah. most poorly executed, the most gratuitous, crappy version of it. That's what they're, you know, the, the most disrespectful version, okay? But the version the writer has in their head, most of the time, is, is a significantly different beast, right? It's a really well executed, beautifully planned, beautifully orchestrated, uh, with emotional resonance, something that's done for a really good reason, right? And so the, the, the trick with like marketing and stuff like that is they'll market events and then all of a sudden the fans are like, oh my God, they're doing this terrible thing. But then when the story comes out, the execution of it is, is usually really, really well done. And so it's, it's a balance between getting the fans to the point where they're willing to take the ride with you and understand that you did this for a reason, and, and a lot of that is, is your track record with them in the past, your track record with these characters, all of this stuff. So it's, you know, it can be complicated, but uh, I think you never let fan expectations get in the way of telling a really good story. It's kind of the mantra that I, that I use. Yeah, yeah I, I feel like I'm always writing for the fans, but I also feel like I don't necessarily think that the fans always know what they want. So it's my job to deliver on something that hopefully you will like, um, but it's not going to dictate every move because otherwise it's fan fiction i shouldn't even say it's fan fiction it's you can go back to your comic book store and pick up and reread your favorites you know if that's what you want you know i had a, a kind of not an altercation but i was in um in new york at uh, jimmy hamley's store and there was a gentleman there who basically came up to me and said you know uh, he had some words about i was writing red sonia and he was very polite, but he said something to the effect is that I don't like you or what you're all doing, like doing new stuff to our stories kind of thing. And he said, I'm just going to read what I like to read. And I'm like, then read what you like to read. I'm not preventing you from going back and reading what you enjoyed in your childhood and teens and your 20s. But I have an obligation to new fans, especially for something like Green Hornet. I need to bring new fans because otherwise that franchise dies. You know, if you really love that universe, that characters, that's really important. Um, so you do you and I do, you know, you don't have to buy my stuff, you know? And it kind of ended there. It's just very like, okay, and it was totally friendly. The, the perfect example of this is Empire Strikes Back. If you were to pitch Empire Strikes Back to people who've seen a new book, they'd be like, I'm out, you know? And I believe that even sort of did happen some of the, when some of the early plot points started to come out from the movie release. But now, that's considered one of the classics, not just of Star Wars, but like of movies. So. It feels like, um, from the writer's perspective, that, um, you know, especially if you listen to some of the Star Wars symbols online, that, that fans want comfort, but people tire of comfort pretty quick, like Han and Luke have a beer in the pub, it's not a story. <laughs> um, so you have to challenge the fans, the fans have to trust you, it's this real kind of give and take, and you also have to accept that you, you can't please all of the people all the time which is um, that thing, whenever somebody new gets stuck for Star Wars, I always try to reach out on Twitter and be like, hey, if you ever feel alone or people come after you, come talk to me. Because <laughs> you're not alone, it's happened to all of us.
But could, but could Han and Luke have a beard in the pub because Luke wants to know what really happened to Greedo? Like, would that be? <laughs> yeah, but now you changed it. It's not just they have a beard, it's like something happened. <laughs> you took it from color forms. <laughs> what does that feel like from your perspective when someone offs a character that you have put a lot of effort into? And if anybody's had any similar experiences where maybe you, know, you took a character to another level that they then made choices with, how did that feel for you? Yeah, so um, before I could write the novel for Phasma, they flew me out to the Lucasfilm um, you know, offices in San Francisco, and they took me to Jabba the Hutt, their in-store cafe, and got me like a a fainty latte, and um, they sat me down with the script, and it's like, it's in all red, there's pencil marks on it, if I have to use the bathroom, I have to go check it into this back <laughs> desk where he locks it, like it's a big deal, and I sit down on this couch in public where everybody can see me to make sure that I'm not taking pictures of it, and I start reading, and I start reading, and then I'm just like, wait, what? <laughs> because yeah, they didn't warn me beforehand, um, and it was very startling. It was a much longer scene in the original script, they cut out like five or 10 minutes of, you know, Asma and Ben talking together, so I had it was really sad and also felt like she was kind of done dirty and that she deserved better. But having seen the actual movie, like I've seen plenty of people in Star Wars fall through burning fiery holes and live. Uh, we've got Maul, we've got the Emperor, we've got Boba Fett, like we've got all of these people that they were like, oh, they're dead, just kidding. So like, I don't, until you show me a body, I'm gonna assume that she and her like armor made out of a starship, fell down, landed on something, got into a escape pod, and found some little planet to be a petty warlord on. And like, I would really like to write that book one day. So it's like, I knew going into it what was gonna happen, um, but it was still kinda like, why were y'all doing this? This is a great character. You, you should really let her live and do a lot of cool stuff. And she doesn't have to be part of the main timeline. She can go off and have her own adventures, like so many did. But yeah, I, I, I really miss uh, just knowing that, you know, we can trust that she's alive. Hi. I see there's a lot of comic creators are getting lots of creator ownership IPs so they can, you know, get the rights and awesome. But is that also could be because maybe they're trusting, uh, like these publishers are trusting more because, well, let's be, let's be perfect guys, the rights that are different about the manga has been, you know, exploding recently and one piece, I think, past Detective Comics was known as the amount of volume sold. So do you think that's also because the rights are, you know, people don't want to read, you know, the same story over and over again. They want something new with a start to finish. Do you think that's, you know, with the rise of like, you know, the Substack, you know, having Scott Snyder be signed to that, do you think that's been helpful? Or do you think that the manga sales have been completely different and Marvel and DC aren't really looking at that and uh, it's just that it's just an explosion because just the internet and your popularity online. Whereas because Paramount can do that now. I don't think manga has anything to do with it. Um, that's a very, it's a very different market. Um, I just, I don't, I, I mean, sure. I, I, I look. All I can do is speak for myself as a, as a reader and a you know, consumer. Um, and I, I personally am, um, I am of the opinion that uh, I, I think franchises should uh, be allowed to end. Um, and I, I, like Batman, for example, I love Batman, but I'm good. I feel like I'm good. I've gotten all the Batman I need. I have, I have I've got the right Batman, but I, bat, I have like the timeline in my head. Like Batman's not needed for me anymore. Like I'm good at the movies. They're gonna just keep doing the same kind of, you know, adaptation, different adaptations. I'm really excited of the same stories. I'm really excited for the Matt Reeves movie. It looks like, you know, a real adult. 
adult filmmaker, like with a vision, like, how now is that? So um, I'm gonna see it, but like, I like things ending, and I like finding new things, um, but that's me, so I just try to make new things for that reason. I think that's a whole nother panel discussion. Um, <laughs> part of it is um, the asymmetry of the fact that it takes us anywhere from a month to years to create the content, and it takes you five to minutes to two hours to consume it. So there's there's a growing number for content overall. So just keep that in mind. Technology, and technology is a big component of this, has enabled us to consume even more in different channels. I and mean, some of you remember way back in the day, there were only three channels on TV. Now how many are there? Hundreds, and they all need content. Same thing now for print comics and digital comics. You've got digital comics, you've got print, you've got graphic novels. So you see, all that has to be driven by so that, to me, is part of it. Um, manga is relevant, but not, that's not driving it. One Piece has been around for ages, right? If we were to actually do the, the numbers, you know, that probably has been outselling Batman forever. I don't know, you're right? I mean, um, uh, plenty of titles outsell Batman. You have to, you know, basically look, look at the numbers within the context they're supposed to be looked at, okay? And I think that that will help you out. But overall, it's just that, Y'all are just like reading and watching and playing all this stuff that we as creators have to create. And keep up with. Hi. Yeah, I'm really sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so this is mainly a question for Charles um, because I'm a huge fan and I was so excited for the announcement for like when there was Comic Luminous yes. and everything. Um, so this is, so the whole series is really Jedi focused, obviously. But there's a lot of talk, like even in your book, kind of like how the Force was used, um, which we haven't had probably since Legend, the Legend series, really. So like, I'm just kind of wondering how that conversation would have gone. Be like, do you ever have like a moment where they were like, it was like Han as the story, people being like, that's not how the Force works. Like, was there a moment where they like, you can't do that, or did they like really let you go? Um. They, they kind of really let me go, which was a nice, so, so the way that that book worked, uh, Led the Jedi, which was the book that kicked off the High Republic stuff, was I, I wrote a draft, you know, like I, I had an outline of the story uh, that I had made that, you know, they, you know, everybody, all of the people involved had kind of greenlit and were about good to go, so then I wrote the book, and, but the difference between, uh, you know, a, a two-page outline and a, and a 400-page novel is, is a lot of words, a lot of things have to be and so that the thing you're talking about, which is expressing the way that a lot of different Jedi see that, that different Jedi see the Force and different interpret their connection to the Force in different ways. It's not just this, you know, you know, energy field. They they might see it as a sea. They might see it as a city. They might see it as a forest. They might see it as a song. Um, hear it as a song. And so that was something that I just that just felt correct to me. Uh, you know, to have thousands and thousands of people who are interacting with this this deep spiritual and personal thing, they might connect it to something in their own personal history. And so it just felt right. Uh, and then when I turned in the draft, that was something that all of the all of the people who read it, the editors and, and, and storybook and so on reacted to very strongly as a good idea. And so then that's it. And so it became um, it became something that made a lot of sense for the High Republic era because it's an era that's supposed to be about the Jedi being um, very well at their height, right? It's the High Republic. And so they're all, they all have a deep connection to the Force. There's no sort of sit out there clouding things. And so they, 
they, they can maybe go a little bit deeper than the, the, the Jedi that we see in the pre-Colaris. Uh, and so it just it felt right for the time, and, and it was cool. People seem to I hear about it all the time, um, and that's really all it was. So we've got just a few moments left, and so with our remaining time, as you think about you know the body of work and, and the universes that you have all contributed, is there something that you have added, whether it be a character or an arc or even just a, a shift in, in tone that you are most proud of? Yeah, um, I guess I'd probably say with that specific, um, in, in that specific light, uh, probably Power Rangers work I did, and, and some of the old, and the Ultraman stuff, but Power Rangers in particular, because it was the first time as a creator I felt like I was able to. I was I was in a situation where I was supported and and enabled to do some really cool and interesting stuff, and it was on a franchise that hadn't really had anything like this before, um, and so much so that even though it was a licensed book. Um, you know, Saban, I, I almost ran a big live action series for them before Hasbro came in. Like, they were so supportive of what we were building and it, all the comics became forward facing for the brand. Um, and that was a really unique experience. And then they, and then the video, or this company anyway did a big video game and they, they hired me to come adapt my own work and write this video game. And so, like, just to, I, I don't get excited. I'm not a fan of much anymore, which which actually hurts to say because I, I want to be again. But um, you know the world. And uh, but I was in San Francisco and walking down these aisles of computers, and they have all of my stuff everywhere. And people are just building 3D models of a character that I wrote as a one-liner, and now it's a playable tree in a dragon sword armor. And they're trying to figure out how to articulate and the set that I built for the live action short we did. They're not trying to model. I was like, do you want the 3D file? And the guy's like, yes. And so that, just to have something that made an impact like that was was um, was special, it felt special. And for people to embrace it also um, means a lot. I would say it's hard to, it's hard to top the High Republic. I've, I've been talking about a lot on this panel, but the idea of making something brand new in, in something as big as Star Wars has been really, really extraordinary. Um, but I would also say, I mean, I, I did a I did a run on a book called She-Hulk for Marvel. That, that also seems to be something that really thanks. Well, it's great. Thank you. It seems to really have touched people in a way that, like, I keep hearing about. I did that book in 2014, and I'm hearing about it seven years later a lot. Um, it, it's it's part of the the show they're making, you know. And I just I don't know. I I, I feel extremely lucky to have had the writing career that I've had. It's a beautiful thing. It makes me happy every literally every time I think about it. So um, I'll just leave it there. So I've been, you know, I've been a Star Wars fan since I was super tiny, didn't know, you know, who the guys on the sheets were, but I kind of liked the whole idea of, you know, Star Wars, even before I had been able to see it, before you could just watch everything on demand all the time. Um, but it kind of bothered me as I as I got older that, you know, we know in the in the movies, like a lot of these characters are war veterans, and we don't see um, much like trauma or PTSD pictured. Everybody just kind of gets thrown in the back of the tank and then they're ready to go. So when I got to the Black Spire, it was supposed to be, you know, a, a guidebook to the Disney Galaxy's Edge land, but they also let me kind of make it into a story about, you know, someone from uh, First Order and someone from the Resistance who are both veterans with PTSD trying to heal and learn how to live new lives. And so it was really meaningful to me that they kind of let me take a Zagat's guide and turn it into a painting of trauma. That's awesome. Um, my first 
first book was Poison Ivy, 2016, and um, very proud of what I was, uh, what they let, let me do, what I, uh, what I did with that book in terms of uh, taking a character who I felt just never really quite had, um, like, I mean, how many origin stories did she have, geez, um, and just uh, representing in a way that I thought uh, made a lot more sense in representing her as a legit scientist, as a, you know, people keep saying, oh, so-and-so has a PhD, but do they really? There's nothing in their story that ever alludes to that. So I'm like, no, she is legit PhD, uh, and it helped that I had 10 years of biotech uh, development background. So I found out later from the NDA, I was like, why did I get that book? It's like, oh, because you had some biotech experience. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Um, it, but letting her be uh, what I interpret her to be is basically, uh, because also we, we generally don't talk about women on the spectrum, you know, that, that is something that's been really not talked about in general, you know, um, and that's the way I, I, I feel. Poison Ivy is a little bit high functioning uh, with Asperger's and uh, her interest is in science, but stuff keeps getting away. Um, it's, and so, you know, people, oh, she's a villain. So I'm like, no, she has her own sense of morality, you know, and uh, if it happens that, you know, we're, we're all carbon based, so somebody dies, there's cycle of life and death. So I, I think she views things very differently Thank you all. Thank you, Amy, Delilah, Charles, and Kyle. And thank all of you for your time. Ranger Nation, let us know what you think. If you have questions, you can email us at rangercommandpowerhour at gmail.com or check us out at rangercommand.com. We're on Twitter at rangercommandph and on Instagram and Facebook at rangercommandpowerhour, all one word. Once again, thanks to Kyle Higgins. Ryan Parrott and all of C2E2 for an amazing show. And we'll catch you on the next episode of Ranger Command Power Hour. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Ranger Command Power Hour only on the Four Eyed Radio Network. You can catch a new episode every other Saturday. Find us on the Morphin Grid at www.rangercommand.com. Follow us on Twitter at RangerCommandPH. Like us on Facebook and Instagram at RangerCommandPowerHour. Ranger Command is also on Patreon. Become a patron by pledging as much or as little as you like every month and receive cool perks. By pledging, you are helping us make our show even better. Go to Patreon.com slash RangerCommandPH to learn more. Thanks for listening.